Welcome to Coffee Shop Chats, the podcast where I sit down with other podcasters to talk about their shows. Coffee Shop Chats is a project of the Podcast Book Club Discord server, with the questions asked in every episode sent in by members of the server. Today, we're here with Aaron and Bernie of Gastronaut Pod, if you guys would like to introduce yourselves. Hey, uh, I'm Aaron Kling. I'm the author, or writer, I suppose, uh, of Gastronaut, which is a science fiction food and travel podcast, and uh, I also do the voice for Oscar Yastwi and all characters. And also the sound editing. Yeah, I do the sound editing too. All the time in the in the Adobe Audition minds. That's that's coming up soon. That's coming up tomorrow. <laughs> and uh, I'm Bernie. I use she they pronouns. I'm the script editor and sometimes a vocal director for Gastronaut. And uh, I'm I'm Aaron's wife. Yay! Yeah, and I'm Bernie's husband. <laughs> the most important job titles, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Aside from uh the people who feed our cat. <laughs> Alrighty, so we will get right into it then. Um first question, pretty basic. What was your entries into the podcasting world? So uh I had exited college, uh where I led a news program for the college radio station WKNC. And um, shortly after that, I was in retail, and for a while, Eric and I have been knocking around. Uh, have been knocking around uh, ideas for, for um, uh, podcasting or stuff like that, and I was kind of nervous about the entire idea. Uh, and then months later, I kind of, I kind of said, "No, I, I got to go for it." So I got in touch with Bernie, and uh, we started working on it from there, pretty much. Yeah, um, my entry to podcasting came a lot more through, like, true crime first, and then I realized that it was making me scared of being alive, (laughs) so I um, started listening to more podcasts like uh, You're Wrong About and American Hysteria and kind of have gone on from there. I think that a lot of people in the audio drama space kind of start off like listening to audio dramas and narrative podcasts and will like then begin creating stuff but on our end it was a lot more like we just kind of (laughs) rather than wading into the ocean and experiencing stuff bit by bit we kind of jumped out of a helicopter over the middle of the ocean (laughs) and now we're kind of surrounded by all this cool work and sometimes have a hard time knowing where to turn understandably so it's i mean yeah isn't there a statistic that there's something like four new podcasts like a day which is insane yeah there are a lot of folks working on these things these days i'm i'm really not surprised to hear that at all like i just found a a list of more podcast recommendations today including one that's like avril lavigne is dead or something which is a (laughs) time traveling pop punk podcast and i'm like i i want to know what this is about uh and i also still have to get caught up on re dracula (laughs) we need to like make more hours in the day just for everybody to listen to shows because there's not not enough 
we were talking about the exact same thing (laughs) just before we came here. Exactly. Like, uh, we need to do more baking so there are more dishes to wash so that I can listen to more podcasts while we do the dishes. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) What have you been listening to recently? What's your, like, go-to show right now, if you have one? I just started The Tower today, actually, and I've been really enjoying it. Um, It feels so mysterious and i feel like we're just getting started on like the symbolism of the main character's journey and i'm i'm really really excited about that yeah yeah i did a lot of research on uh on night vale and uh magnus archives yeah. and, this and and such when i was first starting out and yeah those those are the classics everyone knows their names definitely the grand pappies uh but but occasionally while i'm doing a uh, more modern research and and not not currently i'm not listening to podcasts right now because of uh, doing a lot of editing and script writing but um we were listening to uh the the, the crypto naturalist one yeah i yeah. really love the writing in that one as well i really love what that guy does with his voice and and i love how he builds his worlds out quite a bit yeah I have not listened to that one yet, but it will definitely be going oh my on my gosh. list. No, it's there's this combination of like kind of classic uh, n- natural mystery happening and then bringing in more contemporary uh, just like items almost like the the very first episode includes a lot of references to waffle house (laughs) and like the waffle house coffee creamers and stuff and it's it's really really delightful to see just magic and nature and uh contemporary culture interacting in that way and it's something we see a lot but oh my gosh i don't get tired of it (laughs) We used to actually have, back to just how many shows there are, we used to have a, um, like a, a Google Sheet where members on the server could submit shows that they just wanted to, like, be in consideration for future shows we listened to and just general recommendations and things. And we ended up uh-huh. having to cut it out because we had 300 recommendations between fiction podcasts and actual plays. Ooh. And it was like, nobody's getting through all of these. Like, it's not really beneficial anymore. Oh my god, that's so much. That's wild. <laughs> what what about you? Do you have any recommendations for us? Um, oh man. I am actually overall like I'm pretty new to listening to audio dramas period. I started listening to them like a year and a half ago. Um, but I mm-hmm. it's been a couple months now, but I got caught up with Wobegon and that is my like go-to recommendation show right now because i think dylan just does an incredible job with that show but it is a bit of a i don't know if you guys have listened to it yet but it's a bit hard to keep up with sometimes just as far as the plot goes every which direction and back around again yeah i mean i think that one of the major challenges with writing anything is just like if you're doing something long form how do you keep your subplots and your main plot right. contained and that is and like sorry go ahead oh, go ahead <laughs> <laughs> uh so so we we'd never done something of this scale before uh, yeah. as, as a literary project and so a, a lot of what our work was was just like organizing all of the the plot lines and characters modifying them we have made 
probably over a dozen mind maps. Yeah, we can. <laughs> yeah that's accurate. Just, just getting uh, getting our ideas on the page and and just uh, keeping everything straight. So I can really understand how how Wobegon, Wobegon, right? Yeah. Uh, would would be really impressive just to see how their plots all stitched together. Yes. Especially by design, you know, that show kind of like, you listen to half a season of this one plot line unfolding, and at the end it's like, oh, well, time travel shenanigans, so it no longer happened. So then that alone. No! You know, oh. Hard to keep oh, things straight. Some... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's challenging. But then I'm sure, like, as creators, you know, with with shows and with fandom, I feel like people are pretty, um, people are pretty attached to things. And then if you get one detail wrong about your show, you know, people people will notice. That's not going to go under the radar very often, I don't think. That's something that we've been wondering about with Gastronaut too. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, are there are there elements of the plot that we've accidentally changed? I think at one point we had to do a re-record because we used uh, dollars instead of yes, we certainly did yeah. instead of new, absolutely. And we had a friend who listened to all of season one uh, shortly after it released. Yeah, who was just uh, who was going through like, oh, like how does this connect to things and. And that friend, she was a uh, she was really like looking at a uh, gastronaut's world deeper than we'd ever seen any fan listen to it. Yeah, it was cool to see though. It, it was it was wonderful. It's and always wonderful seeing how deep fans get in. And she'd be like, "Hey, you accidentally left a line in twice here," and we'd just go like, "Oh God, yeah, <laughs> thanks, Carla." Holes in the plot for you. <laughs> <laughs> things to think about at night when you can't sleep, I guess. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Where are we gonna go next? All right, on to the next question. Um, how long have you been making podcasts? And you guys said that you kind of went the opposite end. You didn't really listen to a lot before you started creating, did you? Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, exactly. Going on two years? Yeah, I think that we did the initial whiteboard mind map for Gastronaut, like... Uh, November of 21? 21, yeah. So, yeah, we're coming up on our two-year anniversary. Exactly. Oh, damn. That's Real awesome. soon, real soon. In fact, the, the series will probably be over just a little bit before then. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, we are working on the penultimate episode right now. and Series then, finale in October. Yeah, and we're planning so on exciting. doing a couple more mini-sodes after that. But, yeah, it's, it's awesome to have a project this big yeah. under our belts. So we can answer the question, when did gastro not begin and also we can answer the question when's it ending mm-hmm. so is gastronaut in its current form right now is it pretty similar to your original concept that you were working with or has it changed a lot there have been some uh kind of component changes we've expanded on on some characters we've expanded significantly on other characters um but i think that broadly it is following the original sketch that, that we made for it. Season one definitely went the way that we thought it was going to go with a couple of uh, individual episode changes. I think the most that changed was how many episodes there would be. Mm-hmm. As we've gone, we've added one or two episodes, I think, because I found that we would get it to the, uh, the end of a season and I'd say, oh, I really want to flesh this out or I feel like, I feel like we have too many loose threads here and I want to tie things up so the audience is getting uh, the best payoff possible, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, to add on to that, I think 
the change that has surprised me the most going from season one to season two is that season one was a lot more of a road trip kind of topic of the week narrative and Oscar was usually alone like there weren't a lot of recurring characters whereas in season two he's staying in one place and really getting to know his environment a lot more and I mean Polity is basically a a secondary protagonist at that point and it's really wonderful to see just how much characters develop when we actually get to stay in one place long enough to see them although i loved the road trip angle of season one as well yeah yeah definitely Mm -hmm. and like there's your answer right there finch uh the biggest change was the role that Polity Yellow played across the series. Yeah, we were not expecting that. Like, yeah. Polity grew out of a throwaway line in episode three of season one, and then Aaron was just like, what if they were a person in who helps Oscar escape from jail? And <laughs> it, it just grew from there. It was awesome. And every time I, I wrote the character, every time I put them on page, I I just wanted to do more with them. Yeah. And, and Polity evolved from there. But to to answer your question, uh, short and sweet, uh, that is, generally, Gastronaut has stuck to the initial sketch that we put together two years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I think you really have to enjoy an idea to stick with it that to the letter for that long. <laughs> so, got to hand it to you there. <laughs> I oh, mean, thank you. It, it's work, you know. Like sometimes yeah. you you love the project, and sometimes when you're deep in the audio minds and and you're trying to find just the right take out of out of fifteen, uh, you hate the project. But you get up every day and and you put the effort in, and, and you hope that off. people like it. Yeah, I I have a timer going sometimes just in my head of how long it's going to be until Aaron just goes. I hate the sound of my own voice. <laughs> <laughs> Happens almost every month. Every yeah. every single every month. month. So is this kind of off-book question here, but is this your Mm full-time jobs or is this like a side weekend after your nine-to-five? This this is my full-time. Yeah, and script editor is a a side thing for for me. So Erica generally gets... (laughs) Bernie generally gets called in for for like a lot of of work for script editing or for... uh, what else um oh yeah um, yeah audio do, doing re-records audio re-records yeah. exactly yeah. and uh aaron sometimes is calling me erica because bernie is my like professional writing name but yeah erica is the name that he has known me by ever since we started exactly. dating so it's it is uh, a a peek behind the curtain although also <laughs> you could just go to episode one of gastronaut i think yeah. and i might still be called erica in the like voice credits yeah exactly yeah so fun fun little forward little fra- facing <laughs> transition yeah <laughs> um okay what's your favorite and least favorite parts of podcasting oh gosh you want to start with this one so I can emotionally prepare myself? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think my favorite part of podcasting with Aaron is going through the script for the episode and editing together because like, when you start out with the idea for the episode, it is just this, it's a beautiful abstract concept, but it just doesn't exist. And actually getting to 
work with the draft is so, so much fun. Um, and it's an opportunity to really refine what's there into something that we both feel really proud of. And as for least favorite, I have a, I really have a love-hate relationship with marketing. Uh, I, I love seeing people talk about the show. I, I love talking to people about the show. Um, but actually, like, figuring out the schedule of where to post things and what to post sometimes can just feel a little bit overwhelming. It's strange to think of promoting art as a part of making art, but it is, and it's been something that's been really interesting to get used to, especially since my day job is also in marketing. I couldn't agree more with Bernie on this one. Yeah. Like, uh, editing is really, really exciting. It's also quite scary. You have your, your rough draft, and, and since we release on a monthly uh, timetable and our episodes often range around 45 minutes to an hour, if not more, depending on the episode. Uh, we're, we're generally pressed for time as we're going through. So that's a, a big shakedown run, pretty much. You've gotten all your ideas out on the page. You've, you've tried to follow the objectives of the episode as best you can. And, uh, and then you sit down with, with each other and you, and you start just seeing what's worked and, and what hasn't. And some days you get these phenomenal flow throughs. The episode is firing on all cylinders. And some other days you have to do like significant reorganizations. This event has to uh, go back in time. This event has to be leapt forward in time. More descriptions here, mm -hmm. but it's beautiful. I mean, it might sound it might sound frightening, but it really, really is beautiful. Seeing it's, it all take shape, it's really fun. And yeah. the the like editing notes that we leave to each other in the margins can be very fun as well. <laughs> very cute. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and as for least favorite, I'm right there too. Uh, marketing. Is tough. It's the best way to reach your audience. It's it's wonderful to hear from people that are engaging with the show, especially people you've you've never heard of before, uh, finding you out of the blue and being like, "Oh, I, I loved how Oscar was attacked in the jungle by a monster," <laughs> or, or "Oh, I I love this this character that's been put in," or these food descriptions. Those are always really lovely to read. They're really uplifting, actually. Yeah. But the dark side of it, and uh, and it really makes marketing not so fun, is that it makes you consider all of your work really numerically. How many people are looking? How many eyes do you have? How yeah. successful are you day to day to day? And that can be a lot of strain. That can be a lot of stress. Yeah. So for every positive engagement, you you can also have periods of, of silence or difficulty that, uh, that can weigh you down. So editing, awesome. Marketing, tough but we're learning it's a quantitative system for something that really feels best when it's delivered as qualitative feedback like yeah, whenever yeah. somebody leaves us a, a review we're just like ah yeah it's this is best we wish we knew who you were not in a <laughs> not in a weird way but just in a way where we could say thank you to the actual name of the person but, you know right. that's also part of the excitement like like somebody's speeding by you in a truck and they just lean out of the side window <laughs> and just go i love your work and you go thank you kind stranger that's that's really cool of you seriously right after you're done screaming because someone's just yelled at you from a truck <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that's how it is mm-hmm yeah, definitely. Bernie, I like what you said about like 
creating art and then basically being forced to monetize it because especially it being a big part of your job and probably in turn your income and things like that you know it's not just you creating something because you love it you're at that point creating it because you kind of have to yeah and like i do love gastronaut and it's weird to kind of look at it and be like how do i market you exactly (laughs) oh exactly what has been your biggest podcast mistake big question Mm. (laughs) that's a good question i think on on my end uh it was encouraging us to at the start of season one we released multiple episodes at once when we started the season so we released like the first three episodes so people could binge them if they wanted to but that meant that the stockpile of episodes that Aaron had built up over the previous like couple months all of a sudden were just gone and we went from being on like a two-month timetable to being on a monthly timetable and at that point we were doing early releases on our patreon as well which meant that we had to do a turnaround time of like 18 days sometimes Mm -hmm. like basically three weeks and looking back on it i i really wish that i had just been like "Eh, we'll just release the first episode we'll give ourselves more of a cushion because that the more time you have to look over your work just generally speaking the better your work is and i've seen how stressed aaron gets sometimes too and uh i i I wish i hadn't done that (laughs) yeah and i mean i was right there with you on the decision too like yeah that's true a lot of the information reports that we got from from other podcasters was like and just online yeah yeah do do three so people can binge but frankly um we have had a a pretty regular uh, amount of engagement. Like sometimes people binge, but I don't think releasing three is is ultimately that important for a podcaster. Yeah. At uh, least in our case, yeah. For me, uh, my biggest mistake was probably one of formatting, and that is the episodes being 40, 50 minutes long. Oh, God, uh, yeah. While they give you a lot of time to luxuriate, uh, it kind of puts people in audiobook territory. And I yeah. feel that sometimes means that like people uh, find it tougher to find places to fit gastron into their schedule mm-hmm. a lot of my friends or uh or listeners that i've run into have mentioned like generally they're like oh am i going on a trip am i am i going across country am i going to be visiting my parents upstate time to throw a gastron over on the car radio yeah one of, of one of my professors is like i'm waiting until i go on a road trip to actually listen to all of season two and we were just like okay when are you going on a road trip? Do you need us to, like, <laughs> lend you hotel money? Do you need gas money? We'll do it. Exactly. Uh, and and for the next project that we're already cooking up, we're, we're definitely going to go for uh, for shorter form content. Like 15 and 20 yeah. minute exactly. episodes. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, I guess I guess that is a, biggest, a big mistake because, like, uh, even though I think astronauts are pretty solid and people seem to think so, too, uh, it, it's just hard to say, hey, could you sit down and real quick spends an hour on on this thing that i made yeah yeah i mean i'd also call it a choice i don't think that it was yeah like in retrospect we would change it but at the time it was what made the most sense yeah exactly yeah and and a lot of my inspiration like at the time were uh were the long form video essays and and how a lot of those run times been creeping up and i said yeah Yeah. i'll I'll just go for it yeah (laughs) 
Yeah, I think it takes really, yeah, I mean, people are taking a whole hour of their day. And I think typically with audio drama specifically, at least for me, I can't really be doing much else when I'm listening because otherwise mm-hmm. I will not pick up on anything. So then that's an hour where you just have to kind of be sitting there and listening, which is hard for a lot of people to do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's good feedback, so thank you. <laughs> it's appreciated. Have you guys listened to um, Shipworm before? No, that's the one that y'all are listening to right now, though, right? We finished it. Um, I specifically nice. mentioned that because it's it's marketed as, I think they call it a um, feature-length audio drama because it's two and a half hours long. Um, oh and it was good, gosh. and we, we opened up a um, Discord call, got, I don't know, mm-hmm. there was maybe seven or eight other people there, sat down and listened to all of it, but, you know, of course, it was, it was the concept. entire show was limited to the two and a half hours. It wasn't, like, mm-hmm. multi-episodes, but that's oh, a okay. big commitment, you know. But, you know, I guess you can also have an appreciation for them kind of challenging what the audio drama medium has become, what the like standard 20, 30 minute episodes is. So, Yeah, I think that that's excellent. I mean, and what a fun way to do like a variation on on movie night. Yeah. I guess also if you only have a two hour drive, you know, that's a pretty good way to spend it. So, Also true. Or a flight. That's perfect. Yeah. yeah. What has been the biggest learning curve or something you had to get used to within podcasting? pipeline 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 uh a lot of a lot of folks might focus on individual writing elements or or audio editing i had i had what i would say a an intermediate understanding of either of those things when i when i jumped into this and and i've learned from there but the biggest learning curve is the integration of all the components so that means if you want to get an episode out you need x amount of time for scripting you need x amount of time for uh Recording for re-records in order to uh, get over kind of mealy mouth takes or things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you need time on the editing table. And you, you need to understand what your ETA is going to be and, and how you're going to accomplish it every step of the way. So I would say scheduling, planning, and organization was the biggest learning curve for me. I, I have ADHD myself, so kind of getting through that uh, has been a challenge, but it's also where I've learned the most, both about the project, both about the individual components and, and myself. Yeah, I, I've i been really impressed with the system that Aaron has been working out, especially oh, on the last. Uh, come on, you deserve it, <laughs> especially on the on the last couple episodes. Uh, and the the funny thing is, like, we're still learning like we usually would do script editing kind of later at night after we've had dinner. And for this most recent episode, we did it in the middle of the day and I felt so much sharper and on top of things. And like, even when we've figured out a good system that works for us, there's still room for experimenting and figuring out an even better way forward by fiddling around or just <laughs> by doing, uh, by moving things around because we need to. Remember that uh, friend I was talking about earlier? Uh, the, Carla. Yeah, yeah, Carla, the one who uh, would notice the repeats, Finch. Yeah. Um, that, 
that friend actually like from those repeats and those and those and my frustration with with still having those errors left in the uh the episode that led me to institute a new polish pass which is a whole nother uh run through of of the audio just searching for like coherency repeats things like that pauses in between line reads and while i kick myself for spending an additional two and a half hours on the project I find something wrong every single time, and, yeah. I, and I strike it from the episode. So it feels good. It, it's very rewarding that way. Anything to make the end result more, you know, can always be better. Yeah. The process can always be better. So I think that's good that you're not reaching, like, stagnancy of, like, oh, well, we've, we've figured it all out. So, like, there's nothing different we can do. So <laughs> I, I think we could probably be doing this for, like, five more years and we would easily still be finding things that we were changing around. Yeah. Mastery is a journey, right? Like the the best things that you learn just happen step by step as a process, not by any massive moment of inspiration. Which is right. so annoying, but... <laughs> yeah, oh, it's a real pain. Am I right? How much say does a script editor usually have over the script? Is it limited to punctuation and general flow, or does it include character voice and plot? Oh, All I'm you, Bernie. I am so excited <laughs> about this question. Um, so uh, before I was uh, working my day job and doing script editing, I was in an MFA program for creative writing. And part of that was uh, teaching creative writing. And one of my favorite things to talk about was the process of revision and editing. Um, as a script editor... Uh, I'm not just looking out for, like, uh, sentence-level errors, like spelling or grammar. Mostly what we're looking at is actually a larger concern with structure, with character voices, um, like the question says. Uh, when you look at editing, it's really kind of three separate processes once you actually have a script in front of you. There's revision, which is literally like you break it down, revision, you're re-seeing the piece and seeing how it is put together. And that's things like structure, plot, um, the pacing of that plot. Are things ever going too slow or too fast? Do character choices make sense for what we know about them beforehand? Um, and that is usually the bulk of what we're doing when we're doing script editing. And then you have the other processes like copy editing, which is more sentence level grammatical concerns, or just uh, if you have awkward phrasing, that's something that's handled there. And last but not least, definitely proofreading, which is uh, definitely important when you're getting uh transcripts ready or when you're sending stories out for publication and you want to make sure that your capitalization and punctuation are where they need to be. And um, I really love that work. I'm really, really happy that I get to do it with Aaron. It's good that you love it, Bernie, because you're, you're really phenomenal at it. <laughs> hey, I, I'd probably go stir crazy if all I was doing was uh, like writing stuff and not getting to edit it so um, i'm glad <laughs> yeah i'm glad there are people who like that because i mean as a student revision is my least favorite part of every single yep. paper i write everything like just let me write the thing and, and be done so i'm glad that somebody enjoys it <laughs> 
Okay, but like the the way that our classes are usually structured, just like it it does not reward revision at all. So I am yeah. not surprised that oh, you feel I, that way. In can the I please weigh in on this? Oh, please do. <laughs> so we 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 all remember this. We we all remember doing essays in in college, and you certainly know this right now, Finch, because yes. that's where you are. Uh, <laughs> like. What you want is you want to get the assignment done, and maybe you don't want to start it too soon. And that's okay. You're, you're probably going to end up writing a great paper anyway, even if you do procrastinate. I, I was a critical procrastinator to the point where I would be getting in my, my stuff like just, uh, just minutes ahead of that deadline. Aaron you know made, made me anxious with the way that he got his essays done, but he did get them done. Uh, so, so basically, schools don't necessarily have any any problem with you doing work like that as long as you pull off a good grade in the end yeah and it ends up kind of disincentivizing you as a person who wants to have a life free time do other assignments you've you've got a million excuses and they're all valid they're all good uh for for not wanting to get things done asap and do revisions Mm -hmm. so at the end of the day uh, a lot of even writing courses don't teach revision as much as they do communication drafting uh organization stuff like that yeah uh, american schooling in particular i can't really speak for systems elsewhere but uh we are extremely product oriented like you study for the exam you pass the exam you forget everything about the industrial revolution after the exam (laughs) and the same thing is true for your writing there's usually not much of an incentive to uh, revise it once you've created a draft that you feel is is going to get a good grade because lord yeah. knows uh it's not like you don't have other things that you have to get done <laughs> for other classes yeah. and, and let's be real here um like i know that i've said that revision is, is beautiful and i love it but that's that's my personal circumstance generally speaking the constant revision is terrifying you have to go through something that you've slaved multiple hours over you've you've researched for you've studied for you have an annotated bibliography for and, and now you, you to, might find out that it's completely broken yeah it, you've yeah. discovered that it's just it's crap and that's terrifying to to possibly have to lift that rock and see what spooky evil thing is crawling beneath mm-hmm. that being uh your paper has no thesis uh-oh oh god that that's why you start with the thesis, right? Got to get it out of the way. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. From my perspective, a lot of the time, like I'm not an English major, I'm a criminal justice major, but I do write mm-hmm. a ridiculous amount of papers. But my yeah, professors aren't really, you know, they're not English professors, so when they're grading, they don't really pay that much attention to grammar and sentence structure typically as long as you did the paper and followed the prompt you're going to get a good grade so then it's like Mm -hmm. why should i put in more hours into this paper i already spent hours writing and researching and all of that yeah exactly exactly there's just not enough time once again need to make more hours in the day to do things Pocket that universes now. Problems. Yeah. It seems <laughs> to be the solution time so far. Travel real. <laughs> yes. I had a I had a, a recurring like dream of mine when I was back in college where just uh just how beautiful it would be just to enter a, a time warp and get my eight hours and then otherwise have in real space twenty three hours to my day. Yeah. Imagine what you can get done. That sounds nice. What was the most surprising thing to happen as a result of your podcast? So 
at the end of season one, we were kind of discussing what season two was going to look like, and we were going to move into working on that. And out of the blue, I get a Twitter message that says, Hey, I featured you in my best of year compilation. I'd never heard of the person talking to us. Uh, I'd never been in communication with them at any point. And then suddenly someone was featuring our work in a YouTube video and had even done little adorable hand-drawn sketches of some of the scenes from the podcast. I nearly cried on the spot. That was the single most surprising thing, and it was it was great. It it was it was so cute. That's honestly mine as well. Um, Nothing tops it, right? Yeah, <laughs> there there was a an illustration in particular I still remember of like one person uh, chewing on airlock insulation and the other person <laughs> looking absolutely horrified, and I was like, that's that's exactly what I wanted to see today. Thank you. <laughs> Easy one, Finch. I feel like especially when you're kind of starting out with small project and things like you love the idea that you have so then getting any positive feedback or even you know knowing that people are taking time to create things about your thing is validating of like we were talking of all of the hours of work that you are putting in consistently yeah it just felt so so good and going into it you have no idea what people's responses are going to be so yeah it it was it was wonderful yeah what good advice regarding podcasting has become standard practice for you hmm. good work early means good work late as you as you go through a podcast you go through these kinds of segments of what I like to call lamination, where your work is not quite set in stone, but changing anything is much more difficult. A great example is mistakes that you make in writing are transferred over to the recording process, and then they have to be re-recorded, which is an entire entire new dimension of, of work that you have to do. And re-records are, are totally going to happen. You, you can't stop them. Uh, perfection is the, is the death of product. But the thing is, is any good work that you do early means that you have to correct things less and work through those barriers of lamination uh, less, pretty much. Yeah, uh, I would absolutely agree with that and add on to that idea, just that like outlining your season ahead of time is extremely important. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, also be aware of what resources are available to you in your community. We uh, started off recording in a in a closet, which is where we are now again. But, hey. <laughs> but um, then when we got a really bad like mystery hum in here, which we still have no idea where it was coming from. We... Uh, transformer. It was the building. It was transformer. a transformer. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, it was okay. resonating through the uh, the small space. Oh, that's great. Um. Mm-hmm. We we learned that the local public library had uh, booths available where where we could record, which was really 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 useful. Oh, a uh, little bonus piece of advice for you as well, um, and that is uh, mind maps, outlines, any kind of thing you can get your your thoughts on paper next to bullets or organized. That's gold. That's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, always do prep work if you can. There's a real, 
urge to rush. There's a real urge to get into it. Lay the foundation. Build a stronger house. Yeah, I think people tend to get too excited about things and kind of throw themselves in headfirst. Even like you guys were talking about earlier, releasing three episodes at a time versus releasing them Mm -hmm. one at a time. I think a lot of people wouldn't really have a full idea of where their show is going at all. They just finish one episode and they're like, oh, well, I think this is cool, so everybody else needs to hear this immediately. And then they're kind of left to play catch up after that. Yeah. Yeah, we um, met someone over the summer who's working on outlining and writing their audio drama now, and they had actually done like an earlier version of it a few years ago where they had written the first like three episodes, gotten them recorded, and then realized that they had written themselves into a corner, and so now they're starting again, and I'm I'm really excited to see what they come up with and hope to be able to like promote their stuff when it comes out. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. I hope they don't crash. They have a good head on their shoulders. They they'll totally be, they'll, do. They'll be fine. They totally do. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure it's very easy to dig yourself a hole you can't really dig out of and then you kind of burn out. It's yeah. it's it's not just that like there's there's the burnout and there's also you you throw yourself in and you say, "Oh, I need to re-record the last four episodes." And that becomes just this value add of work that can that can just break your back uh, as a creative. Yeah. I I am always going to Erica like every two months uh-huh. being like, "We need to re-record episode 1." <laughs> My ability in like sound design has gotten so much better. We, we don't have to change any of the script. It'll be great. It'll be fine. I'll just re-record the whole thing. And then we have the same conversation, which is, we need to get a, an episode out this month <laughs> if we're, if we're going to be able to like make right. schedule. Yeah I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm like, yeah, when, when you're, uh, when you got time, I think that that would be a great project to do. And I think that when I, when I hit the word time, time. it just resonates <laughs> in Aaron's, in Aaron's head. <laughs> All the wind just comes out of my lungs and I'm like, oh yeah, time. <laughs> oh, yeah. That thing we keep talking about. But I think at that point, it also speaks to, like, how far you come as a creative. Like, there's the thing about um, about when you're learning a new skill. You know, it's, like, incompetent, incompetence, competent, incompetence. Yeah. And then you start yeah. to, like, recognize where your mistakes are. So then at the time, I'm sure, you know, episode one, you're just beginning. But you're like, well, I mean, it's not perfect, but it's pretty good. And now you can see where all the errors are. Yeah, that that's exactly right, and it's one of the things that makes listening to audio dramas really interesting too. Because like, when you're going through uh, one that's more of a narrative rather than like a, a monster problem of the week sort of structure, you know that when you're listening to episode one, it is the beginning of a great journey, and things are only going to get better and more exciting from there and at the same time it is the worst the sound design and audio design is probably ever going to be across the series and it's like oh oh, gosh like it it feels like we're all kind of dressed up in kind of awkward clothes (laughs) looking at each other from across a room like hello yes we all know this is awkward but let's just do our best and share some good stuff with each other which is also just a little funny knowing like first episodes maybe the first couple episodes are just you pitching your show and pitching your idea to anybody that listens but the pitch is also like the lowest point of your show quality wise 
I know. Yeah. But that's what people are judging. You know, if you have 100 episodes, people are judging all of your 100 episodes based off of your first episode. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's part of the reason why uh, sort of independent side episodes can be so useful because it's like, oh, you're not sure if you want to listen to the whole thing? Well, here, come check out what Polity Yellow has to say about uh, opera cakes and young love. And then maybe that'll that'll get you through the weird intermittent laptop noises in some right. of the episodes, which... Aaron did his darndest to cut out, but every <laughs> once in a while they still come through. That was before Isotope too, so there's there's only so much a human man can do. Yeah, that's the sound program you use, right? Exactly. Yeah. When starting out, can a fiction podcast support itself monetarily, cover for its own hosting fees and distribution, or does hosting one require an investment? Does it differ by platform or are most comparable? So I can't say if it differs by platform, uh, because we've we've stuck to the same platform uh this this whole time. Yeah, your RSS feed is on Libsyn. Yeah. And you want an RSS feed, you need one, uh so you can get out to to all of the the kind of subsites. Apple's really important, Spotify is really important. Right. Uh the others you, you know this already, definitely. <laughs> um but like overall, um there's a there's a piece of advice which is do this as a hobby first before you before you do it as a business mm -hmm. and what that means uh, to to save folks some time puzzling out for themselves is is that you won't necessarily be having uh, a huge income so get better at it do it for fun keep going and find your success as you run pretty much yeah a uh, gastronaut has usually not covered all of its costs um and that is just part of us doing the work right now um but i'm i'm really happy that we're doing it and it just means a lot to get our work out there in the first place i do um a lot of science fiction and fantasy writing and it's kind of a similar thing where i'll write a project that i'm really excited about but then actually getting it into a paying market is is difficult but i also don't want to be doing anything else yeah exactly <laughs> mm -hmm. there's no best time to start the best time is when you feel you're ready and that's going to be different for a lot of people honestly don't wait until you feel you're ready Oh, yeah, start before you're ready? Do, do it scared. Just do it scared. That's a great piece of advice, yeah. Thank you. I got it from Tumblr. <laughs> <laughs> Best advice comes from, from Tumblr. Said nobody <laughs> yeah. ever, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we've got some questions about the podcasting, in quotes, industry and uh, community. Um, is there something you've been dying to say to another member of the podcasting community any burning questions about someone else's process or statements of admiration you'd love to express? I think that for me, it was actually the thing that I mentioned earlier about Crypto Naturalist. Just, I love your work. Reminds me of some of my favorite stuff that I was reading while I was in my, my writing program. Uh, it seems like it would be really difficult to keep coming up with all of these ideas. And I am so curious about 
what kind of research process goes into that. Um, yay. <laughs> Thank you for existing. I'm in the same boat there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is kind of the same as the next question. Who are your biggest creative inspirations? But I guess that could be a bit more general. Yeah. Yeah. Um, take it away. What do we have for Gastronaut okay. here? Uh, Gastronaut is a... I mean, I, I've pulled from a lot of creative sources. Uh, plenty of cyberpunk writers. Um, William Gibson. I, I read a book of his. I read a couple books of his, actually, back in the day that, that really, really, like, kind of spoke to me. But also many video games. Brigador was one of those. Which uh, is for a... Astronaut. What is a, which is a top-down kind of like vehicle battler game that has way too good writing for, for what it is. Yeah, deals a lot with like class and corporations becoming yep. like these new imperialist structures. Colonialism, colonialism, colonialism. Yeah, which is definitely, you know, what's going on on Theravati in season two of Gastronaut. Yeah, and, and a number of pop culture sources. But as far as food writing goes, when we were in the first eight months or so of, of producing Gastronaut and the, and the period just before production, I read a lot of food writing books. And, and those are, that's kind of food journalism. It's exploring not just like food and its quality from a critical eye, but the idea of how food touches culture, how food touches uh, wealth, how food touches kind of the connectedness of, of individuals around the world. Yeah, there's a collection of best American food writing that comes out each year. And I got a copy of the like 2019 collection from a friend and classmate Annie Trin and the the stories in that one were just so so good there was one that was looking at like Kit Kat culture in Japan and like all the the flavors that come out uh for Kit Kats that are specific to like seasons or celebrations um Kingdom from Dust was yeah. about a uh, almond and pistachio farming out in California but because California doesn't have enough water around to be able to produce these crops, a lot of these big barons of, of the produce industries would be stealing water from, from other barons or from municipal departments. or And it, it's quite cutthroat, where to the point where if you ask around where the water is going or where it's coming from, then people might kind of intimidate you off the property. Yeah, and those are just two stories, and so many of the stories are like that, are of that quality. You could start with discussing taco stands and end with an exploration of the slave trade across the Atlantic. Yeah, it it's so wonderful. And if you look at like book reviews online, a ton of people are like, why is this so political? And it's just like, buddy, that's food. <laughs> that's the best part? <laughs> yeah. And Wikipedia is is also a, <laughs> where where we do a lot of our, yeah. our research. Like yeah. it it just gets really granular into the history of stuff, right. and and that that's a great start jumping off point for just going deeper. I have this funny habit I do where when I'm eating a meal, uh, I like to learn something, and so I end up doing a lot of wiki dives on the ingredients that go into my meal. So that's where you get history of things like cumin. Or you get, like, how long have humans cultivated spinach agriculturally? And when you pull on those threads of history, 
you find them just woven into so many other sectors. Mm -hmm. Right. And anytime you read about spices, you read about human misery. Yeah. Spices and human misery, they they go together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, everything has a hand in something else, it seems like. And I think historically it kind of lends to um, a larger conversation. You know, as, as like a student, a lot of people don't really care for um, history, but then it's kind of the, the whole... Um, the whole history teacher lecture about like well history is important because it keeps from from us from repeating the same um, historical events and things that we don't want to happen again, yeah. which I think is also applicable in a broader sense to like you said culture and um, historical slave trade and things like that you know and a lot of yeah. things that people don't even realize might still be actively happening in parts of the world just because it doesn't happen where they live so just education as a whole is probably a good thing you know yeah that's absolutely true like um there is there are ecological concerns in gastronaut with um like the over harvesting of jelly pears but you look at our world right now and there are absolutely just huge ongoing concerns with palm oil and even with like the fact that we have bananas year-round in our grocery stores, what needs to happen in the, like, logistics train in order to get these tropical fruits to American grocery stores, and in such huge quantities as well? History is a funny thing uh, as a lesson. I used to actually not like history as much when I was living in school, but... The more you invest into it, the more you start seeing themes coming around again. Yeah. Or you keep running into the same guy in history over and over again, like kind of popping up where you least expect him. Ugh, that guy. Well, like like Napoleon <laughs> appearing in Egypt or things like that. Oh, like, yeah. And, and the more you learn that, the more you see how everything snakes together and you realize that there is a narrative. There is a story there. And that story is deeply, deeply interesting. Most people, they, they find their niche, they find what they're interested in, and they just keep going. But the more you learn about it, the more you, you can't escape being pulled in to, to other cultures, other histories, other aspects of the world that we've lived in. Mm -hmm. What would you say to yourself at the start of your career if you could send a letter back in time? What would you say to others at the same stage now? Okay. Yeah, I know this one. <laughs> uh, Aaron. Look at me. Look at me, buddy. Look at me. Okay. <laughs> there is a library five miles away from you that has a better acoustic setup than you are going to get out of your apartment closet. Go there. Go there and record your audio. And while you're at it, uh, you can go online and get a program called Isotope. I'm not sponsored by these guys, but I might as well be. <laughs> uh, where it will really help you tamp down on a lot of background noise and reverb. Put those together and you are going to be doing really, really great. And it's going to take you months to realize this. That, there's my message. It's, it's all audio <laughs> stuff. That's all I got. Um, I think mine would probably be it's okay to not have fun, but not having fun is not virtuous it is better for you to have a good time hell yeah Bernie. you do not have to stress yourself the hell out 
in order for you to consider yourself a good worker. <laughs> um, you are going to have a better time taking a break and going out roller skating with your husband than you will staying in and staring at a screen until it feels like your eyes are going to bleed. Yeah. A lot of people say this is this kind of work requires blood, sweat, and tears, but you don't have to bleed. You don't have to. Yeah, fun hack. Don't yeah. bleed. It's terrible. <laughs> Just cry, don't bleed. Just cry, <laughs> don't bleed. There you go. Put them to throw hello. <laughs> um, additionally, uh, sorry, I, I keep losing my questions. Don't worry about it. No worries. Uh, how has the industry changed since you got started from your perspective? Hmm. There's new faces, definitely. Yeah, I I think that, honestly, since we've still been, we haven't been doing this for a very long time, I think that the biggest changes for us have been more internal with this greater knowledge of like, oh, wow, there is such a community here and there is so much good work being done all the time and it is not going to be possible to keep up with all of it um so once again it's good to just have fun and have a good time and i think the other most major change has been uh the uh shit show happening at at twitter right yeah um, yeah like, I, I've talked to multiple, like, independent writer friends who are just like, well, that was my platform, and yeah. it's gone. And that's miserable. Same. Uh, really, really good one to point out, Bernie. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's kind of a little bit interesting to call podcasting an industry, because at least, especially in audio dramas, it's it's pretty niche mm. outside of the big names like Welcome to Night Vale. Like, I feel like generally yeah. outside of that, it's pretty much individuals or small groups of people kind of just roughing it. But yeah, the yeah. conversation of how, like, the reliance of bigger platforms, like you said, Twitter, and just how the internet in general is changing kind of has to, you have to stop and reevaluate every decision that, especially when it's your livelihood, you know, it affects everything you do. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, we are in a position where we want to share our art and we want to make sure that it gets out there. And even though audio dramas are are more niche, it's still something that people can connect with much more easily and build a much larger community than we could in the past because of advances in technology, because of the internet. So suddenly having to find new ways to do that is certainly a stumbling block, but I think if we've learned anything from, like, the development from Web 1.0 to this, like, ongoing centralization and now to new sites popping up to people starting to make their own websites again, people will find each other again. It just sucks that we have to. Yeah. And you really can meet a lot of people in a business like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Got in touch with some really cool creatives over the course of working on gastronomy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we have. 
Um, I am actually going to skip a question and come back to it. So we're yeah, going to no go problem. to, um, because we kind of touched on it a little bit. Uh, indie podcasting is a medium that allows underrepresented communities to find a space with characters, storylines, and other creators and fans they can relate to. Do you have any thoughts on how your work for Gastronaut contributes to this in and out of fiction? You want to kick it off? Sure, yeah. Um, so, <laughs> a while ago, one of the one of the posts on the Gastronaut Tumblr was <laughs> Gastronaut's isekai title could be my partner's science fiction podcast cracked my she they egg <laughs> which is basically just like the the more that Aaron was writing polity who is a gender the more that i just kind of felt myself resonating with their character and just increasingly felt myself stretching past what m I thought that my gender was up to that point. And having polity appear so much in the show was just really, really great for that reason. And I think that Gastronaut has also been doing good work with uh class divides to some extent i think aaron might want to talk more about that and absolutely yeah and uh oscar is also a, a mixed race character and a lot of our characters are of uh asian descent exactly yeah and that's that's been good too yeah uh, when i made gastronaut i i'm I'm a cis-het guy myself, so so these, I don't always know how equipped I am to speak in, in spaces like these, but I wanted to try. I wanted just to to not just say, well, I I, I can't include characters of of different backgrounds because I am not of that different background. I'm, I'm mixed race myself, but I just wanted to have a space where people could have a good time. I wanted to have a world where where people could change things. And and that is what a lot of season two has been about. I I had run a lot of uh, tabletop campaigns, which were which were pretty grim, and I felt like there really wasn't much that could be done about the larger flow of civilization in those campaigns. More more small stuff, saving people, helping communities. And when I made Gastronaut, I really had a had a drive to to have a setting get upended, and I wanted the people upending that setting to be to be people who were on the outside and trying to find their own way, I mm -hmm. suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're getting to a place in fiction now where, you know, because especially uh, uh, several years ago when there were queer characters or trans characters or even mixed race characters in media, it was made to be um, that was the point of their character arc and maybe in a larger sense that was the mm. point of their story. So I mm -hmm. think yeah. now we're kind of seeing yeah. the shift of like, yes, this character is queer and trans and, you know, whatever else. And it doesn't matter beyond them being a person. You know, it's an aspect yeah. of their identity, but it's not the entire point of their character, which I think 
indie media has been really good about doing, and I, I hope we see that more in uh, mainstream content sometime soon. Finch, today's indies are going to be tomorrow's professionals. Yeah. Absolutely. This, this trend is going to be on the rise, not dropping. It's just going to take time, right? Yeah, I think it's also very um, place to place. Like, I, I live in Appalachia, and mm -hmm. not quite hey. rural Appalachia, but it's enough where, you know, being a queer and trans person, you get looks, you get, you know, yelled yeah. at from car windows and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I, I think uh. it takes the small guys on the bottom kind of pushing their way to the top to, for it to, you know, just become a thing. Yeah, I mean, I remember when when I was probably like midway through high school, um, the kind of 2010s feminism was rising to the surface. And one of the things that was being said a lot to uh, female creators at that time oh, yeah, was was one. just like, well, if you don't like video games, then why don't you make your own video games? And it's like, okay, right. we are at oh, this yeah, point, yeah. actually. And I've I think that indie work is so important oftentimes because it's more able to say things that larger corporations would be worried about their profit motives for or actively working against. Like, you hear some of the stories that come out about, like, Owl House or Steven Universe and just how hard those creators had to fight to Uphill include... Uphill both ways. Constantly. Yeah. Constantly. Yeah. To include what they wanted to include and... I'm so glad that they're fighting for it, and I'm so glad that there are other people who are doing the same in their own art every day. I, I really think folks are reaping what they sowed. Like, you, you tell people for over a decade, if you... I mean, longer. Yeah, longer. Yeah. If, if you want to see more gay characters, go write your own. And then, and then now you have complaints about, like, why are there so many gay characters in media? <laughs> people followed your advice. They, they got down to business and they worked. And they made things, and now it's all around you. And it's great. Mm -hmm. A lot of podcasts are pure passion projects with little to no funds to hire people. What are your thoughts on those sorts of podcasts trying to shoot their shot to get guests even if they can't pay them? Um, can I take this one first? Yeah, please yeah. do. So, uh, money can be exchanged for goods and services, but... <laughs> but goods and services can also be exchanged for goods and services. So if uh, a small creator doesn't have the funds monetarily to ask a guest to be on their show, I think that it's worthwhile to ask, like, is there some kind of other trade that we could arrange in terms of like a skill switch? Uh, I teach you some stuff about soundscaping and you appear as a guest voice on my show. Um, or, you know, just exchanging guest spots. And I think that that in itself can be a really good way to build community. Um, Oftentimes, I think if you are polite 
and you approach someone with respect and you understand that a no is a no, then a no is the worst thing that can happen to you. And it's worthwhile asking and trying to work something out, even if it involves something that's more skill-based or barter-based than just money. Yeah, uh, the term work for exposure has been going around uh, for, for quite some time now. And it should not be going around. And it should not. <laughs> uh, podcasting is really, really hard work. It is. It's as hard as work as any other creative task. And creative work is... Awful. It can be brutal. It can be but really wonderful. brutal. And and wonderful, yeah. <laughs> um, and promising someone access to your platform, it's just not necessarily the most concrete that you can do. You yeah. Know? You, you need to give them something tangible back and if you're if you're working together if you're cooperating on making the same project that's all well and good but uh but promising someone something nebulous in the hopes of advancing yourself that's really doing them dirty yeah i think that's a really good point it Mm. it can't be a nebulous thing it needs to be something concrete uh bernie's exchange of of knowledge exchange of ability you edit my back-end audio i edit your back-end audio Mm. that's great uh just scratch each other's backs, pretty much. Work together in the larger community. That's what a community's for. Mm. I think specifically in, you know, like we've been talking about indie podcasting, it's, you know, the, it, there is a community aspect to all of it. So it's kind of like you yeah. need other shows and other creators in order to survive. You know, with the amount of shows, episodes going out every day, it's kind of hard to make a name for yourself even in such a small community because Mm -hmm. the internet you know there's so much happening everywhere all the time um so anything to help you kind of get out there and get your show in front of people you know you could have the best show in the world and if nobody ever hears it it's not really you know is it the best show in the world at that point exactly and like there are so many talented people in the space so if you want to offer your skills or learn skills from somebody else like that's wonderful learn learn about music learn about uh soundscaping learn about audio editing that's great someone has a piece of the puzzle that you don't have yet it's mm-hmm. just the nature of the beast if you find them if you if you meet them everyone's work is going to improve mm-hmm. yeah. and i think with the amount of work that goes into one show you know especially if you're one or two people, you know, writing, editing, recording, voice acting, they're all very different skill sets. And for one or even a few people to be doing all of those, when some people only do that one thing for their entire career is is very demanding. So, you know, people have specializations and things like that. So, yeah, definitely collaboration is important. It's yeah. Exactly. It's extremely demanding. Uh, Aaron was talking to his friend Zach a couple weeks ago about what he usually does for Gastronaut, and I remember Zach was just quiet for a second and then was like, I think you need a vacation, man. And we were like, okay, And I was like, thanks. yeah, just, just 60 more days, Zach. I'll, I'll get there. Yeah. And I'll get to that. I'll get to paradise. Mm-hmm. And, and also, to, to top off this particular question, uh, money is great. If, if you pay someone and, and how all of these systems work that shows that their work is something that 
can be paid for, that should be paid for. Yeah. So even if you can't pay them a lot, even if you can't give them $20 an hour, try to give them something, you know, work something out. And I think another thing, too, is if you find that your podcast is so ambitious that you need to bring on a team of 12, but you can't properly compensate that team of 12, bring down your scope. You're doing this to yourself. Bring it down. Work within the constraints of of, of what you can produce. Use that creativity to, to make something that can help you and hurt as few people as possible. Yeah, we have some projects that we've been thinking about that we know that we would not be able to do them until we probably have like two or three other productions yeah. under our belt. And, yeah. you know, that that idea of a much more complex audio drama with a lot more voices, it you can keep it. It's not going to go anywhere. And it will be waiting for you when you have the resources to properly do it justice. Yeah. What's that? This coming from someone who's been trying to write the same novel for 10 years and is finally getting through the chapters. Yeah. Good things take time. They do. They do. Yeah, Good initially, like, mm. I kind of, you know, from Podcast Book Club and things like that, I kind of fell into it and then hit the point of, like, okay, well, people are interested in, you know, hearing more from creators because when the um, book club first started, we were just getting a couple creators kind of just coming in with everybody else. And it was like, oh, well, that's interesting, you know, because a lot of listeners don't really get to hear about the creative process and all of the behind the scenes and things like that. So then it was kind of like, okay, well, what if, what if I talk to people? And so, you know, that started. And then I'm kind of coming at it with the perspective of like, I'm a college student and I don't have a lot of extra money to be paying people, Mm -hmm. you know? And then it's like, Obviously, it's different with this because it's exposure. It's, you know, you get to come and talk about something you love and things like that. But yeah, the the um, overall like pressure of monetization of your work in every space is definitely interesting. Exactly. I, I think that this project is extremely important for small creators and I, I love talking about any kind of creative process. So when I, when I saw you posting about <laughs> starting this up, I think in like March or April, yeah. maybe earlier, I, I was just like, oh God, I, I really want to be able to do this. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the chance, Finch. Yeah. yeah like no. sometimes, yeah. Sometimes people will just be so excited about your project that they'll be like, no, this, now. Right, yeah. I And I also think it's probably easy as a creator to forget that. Like, you do put in so many hours into your work, and yeah, people like it, but, like, there's a difference in you really liking your work and then having somebody else like it enough to be like, no, let's sit down for, like, three hours and, and talk about it, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. The audio drama community is largely populated by smaller creators who often become very active on sites such as Tumblr and therefore active within their fandoms. How do you as creators think both creators and fans should approach these shared spaces? Should they be shared at all? I mean, I love seeing what people are saying about Gastronaut on on Tumblr. Uh, I came back to the site after 
a long hiatus away because it was like eating my life during undergrad. And it was just really nice to see people like reblogging posts about Tumblr to reblog uh, other podcasts like artwork. There was a, a certain art piece from the night post of like a, a zombie horse that I am I still think about and I was just so excited to get to see it in the space. Um, I know that parasociality can be a, a problem in in a fandom spaces. Yeah definitely. yeah, definitely. But like, I also don't think that parasociality is something that should prevent you from being in spaces that you enjoy. I I enjoy being on the on the gastronaut tumbler and i love seeing what aaron posts for it too it seems like it's probably too easy to say something along the lines of like don't be weird but i think (laughs) if there's any kind of advice then just for both creators and fans take a few deep breaths think about how well you actually know this person uh whether it's a fan who sent you an ask or you reaching out to another creator and then just be respectful. For now, we have a very pleasant community. Yeah. So there, there's really been no problems there. Right. I don't yeah. mind being accessible. I, I don't mind hearing people uh, talking about the project. It makes everything feel more real, if that makes any sense. Yeah. yeah. And, and if be respectful comes out as kind of vague, then I guess a more precise thing to say would be, like, ask yourself how you would feel if a stranger said this to you. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think, of course, I walk the the weird line between, like, kind of touching into creator spaces and also being largely active in in fandom spaces specifically. And I think Mm -hmm. something that I've personally seen crop up a lot with Tumblr is the accessibility of creators. People kind of treat it as like, oh, now everything I think about your show, like, you need to see and confirm and respond to. So then you see this creator getting a bunch of asks being like, okay, but does, like, X, Y, Z, this, this, and this, or, like, I told my friend to listen to your show, and, like, things that, not all of it is bad. I'm sure a lot of it is perfectly great, but I think there's a point where people don't really ask themselves, like, is this worth putting in front of a creator? Because, you know, if you think about, in a broader sense, media, like, if if you're really into a movie, you're probably not Mm going to hear back from anybody involved in that movie because it's on such a large scale... They're pretty far removed, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, too, like, the kind of accessibility and uh, instant communication that that we have now with, with Discord and asks and everything can kind of make people feel like they are on a timer to respond to things. And I... I have seen more people in recent years talking about taking a step back and responding to things on a timetable that works for you, but we've definitely cultivated in recent years this sense of just getting everything done instantly. Yeah, well, I mean, because like a a DM, it's not really like a... 
It's closer to a phone call than like a letter or an email, you know? And yet in reality, especially due to like bugs that we sometimes get with the gastronaut inbox, it's more (laughs) like a a bottle tossed into the sea (laughs) with a message inside. Like, I don't know when we're going to see this. (laughs) Tumblr will be like, hey, you got some like fan messages. And we're like, what are they? And Tumblr goes, huh? What? Wouldn't you like to (laughs) know? (laughs) Yeah. So we just kind of twiddle our thumbs. That's also, a, a, once again, a larger conversation about, especially just with social media and, like, phones. Like, I'm 20 years old. Okay, so I remember, like, a little bit a time before phones were really big. But I also grew up when, you know, like, I grew up with my mom having a BlackBerry phone. And then when iPhones became mm-hmm. big and things like that. And now it's like, you know, people have, people in general have access to you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And you're expected to constantly be, you know, responding, reacting to things. And I feel like that, especially probably from a creator perspective, that can be very draining and, you know, burnout and things like that are already prevalent enough. You know, if if you're doing your work and you spend eight hours a day staring at your computer and then you're supposed to go home and spend four or five hours also staring at your computer and staring at your phone, (laughs) it's, it's, it's an unrealistic expectation that just the uh, general population has kind of set. Exactly. The 24-7 access is just kind of an illusion. And uh, I think that the more we realize that, the the better off we'll be. Yeah. Okay. So we have some gastronaut-specific questions, and then we have some little silly random questions um our oh first boy we'll one, see what we can do <laughs> do nuclear weapons exist in the gastronaut universe all right so uh the answer is yes uh and more powerful than you might be expecting gastronaut is is quite a ways more advanced than ours so there are fusion weapons in gastronaut but people really don't like using them very much if anybody's been hearing Gastronaut, you'll notice that Earth is pretty wrecked. Uh, climate change has been slowed, but the damage that has been done to the planet is pretty permanent on like a human civilization kind of timescale. There's been mass extinctions, uh, loss of, of ecological systems, the, the works. So while the world of Gastronaut is, is bleak in some ways, is cyberpunk in others... The one thing they've managed to do right is giving a hoot about the new worlds they're colonizing. And that well, means that... giving a hoot relatively the new worlds they're colonizing. Yeah, exactly. exactly. They, they don't want to poison the well that they are drinking from. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Uh, so nukes, nuclear weapons, are not really, not really what people like using. Instead, a lot of... A lot of uh, research has been done in like kind of smart weapon systems to make attacks more precise, so you don't need to wipe out everything in an area. And if they do want that, they typically will just take a a like heavy rocket, accelerate it very very fast using rail space, and then throw it at a planet that way. But yeah. that is almost never done in the setting. I think the two biggest pieces of technology that come up in Gastronaut are the the FTL travel, the rail systems, uh, and also the kind of 
surveillance and policing technology that's being used on Theravati in season two by uh, the mercenary forces that are present there. Um, and because of that, uh, we've concentrated a lot more on like what travel can look like, what uh, it means to slow boat your way to a new solar system and then construct like an FTL platform there, what it means to be able to evade detection by like <laughs> intergalactic imperialist forces um, when you are somebody who's just trying to deliver food. To uh to clarify, not intergalactic there. Oh, not they're, intergalactic? Yeah, they're just in the one galaxy. I'm your editor. I'm supposed to know <laughs> these things. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, it just, they just jump from, uh, from stars to stars, pretty much. Okay, okay. Yeah. We're still in the Milky Way. Got it. So, um, to, to summarize, there are nukes. People have them. Uh, nation states have them. They don't like using them very much. Yeah. When was it decided that Polity and Oscar would become romantically involved? Ha! Great question. Uh, so, Polity was kind of a background, uh, like, feature of the world. Polity was a, a kind of figure of world building earlier on in season one. They got mentioned basically once for a, uh, like, guerrilla art thing that they did in episode three, I think. And, and that, like, of all of Polity's works was, was much closer to straight up vandalism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then Polity kind of encounters Oscar over at the end of season one, and and from there, as we've said uh, as we said earlier in in your earlier questions, writing Polity became so much fun, and we we really felt that a new voice next to Oscar was was great for the setting, great for conversation, great for the world. That we just we wanted Polity to be a to be a part of things, and the more we wrote Polity and Oscar. The, the more we, we kept going uh, forward with their relationship. Did you want to say something, Bernie? Yeah, yeah. Um, to add on to that, like during the couple months when we were planning season two, in between seasons one and two, uh, we went back and forth with like, do we just want them to be friends? Do we want them to get together and then be like, eh, no, I think it's better if we just stay friends. And... Initially, we were thinking that, like, Oscar would keep the relationship much more of, like, a, a background thing, but I think ultimately we kind of realized, like, if something is in the background, then it's not happening on the page in yeah. any way that the audience right. can interact with. Yeah. So, you know, what would the point be? And I remember Aaron gave me the the script for the date night episode and they uh, spoiler alert they 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 kiss and i i just had this reaction of like oh we're completely on the page now let's <laughs> let's go let's do Jumping this right exactly and it's i i really love seeing the way that their relationship deepened especially as they like negotiate what values they share and what values they they don't and especially as they take care of each other in ways that are kind of dangerous like 
they get into dangerous situations for each other a lot. Yeah. Yeah. They they grow together. It's not always perfect, but they are growing. I remember uh, we were kind of planning out the, the nitty-gritty of season two, and I realized that we were going to have to have an episode for for the two of them being together on the town yeah. on a date. And we didn't really know exactly what the content of that would be, but I was I was just so giddy to give it a shot. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm really happy with how it turned out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think generally, I think people can be a bit too harsh on relationships in fiction. Like, they'll, they'll kind of approach something and be like, oh, well, it doesn't really make sense because of this. Or, like, I think it was too fast or too slow. But it's also very real in the aspect of, like, that's exactly how it happens in real life, you know? I don't think you ever meet a person and go, oh, well, I, I know we're going to end up together. It's, like, that's just not how it works. So seeing that, well, you could have that thought, out. but <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a bit of a frightening thought, I'd say. Yeah. Um, do you do you mind if I talk a bit about us? Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, go for yeah, it. Yeah. Um, well, Aaron and I actually we started dating in high school, and like the first two years of us knowing each other was like, oh, I'm sat next to this uh, guy in biology who's really nice about all the drawings that I put over on my notes and uh, who keeps asking me to these friendly hangouts, but oh no, I can't make it because of a scheduling conflict. And meanwhile, on Aaron's end, Aaron is like... Can I take this one? Yeah, yeah, please. So so I would hear scheduling conflict and and all I would think is just, you know what? She's not interested. Uh, Right. (laughs) Don't want to be a bother. Don't want to be a jerk. So just let it ride, you know? Anyway, I developed a big crush on him and then asked him out, like, two years later. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it did happen really suddenly. It was, it was just this sudden transition from, like, this is someone who I really love spending time with, who I actively seek out to, like, have conversations with, even though we don't have any classes together anymore. Right. And to, to just all of a sudden, like... I don't know why I'm doing this, but let's let's go on a date. Let's go. Yeah. So that that definitely probably colors aspects of Oscar and Polity's relationship. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. And and what's more, um, like there's a kind of time dilation in, in how Oscar releases his episodes. We see them on a monthly basis here, but to Oscar, like three months might pass. Or in the situation where spoilers, uh, Polity is is severely injured quite a bit of time can pass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so they were they were spending a, a a long while together even where the audience wasn't looking. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as as Bernie said, like I just didn't want that to be nothing but background material. I yeah. wanted to write about that. I wanted to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm really, really glad that you did. Oh thanks. Mm-hmm. What were the inspirations for Pacheco and Theravati culture? So, a while back, I had a realization while I was working on Gastronaut that a lot of food moves from place to place through trade, through through migration, and unfortunately through war. Yeah. Uh, I researched a lot about how Vietnamese cuisine hit the United States, and a lot of that was a product of what happened in the Vietnam War. Um, migrant families that were fleeing uh, chaos and destruction would, would land on American shores and, and they would try to set up lives there. And in many situations, they would bring over 
uh, their food, not just to eat for themselves, but also to prepare for other people in their community, and then eventually for people outside of their community. Um, and and this process, if you look at food journalism, is is tricky. It you could look at it with a really starry-eyed migrant story. They they landed on their feet and and built an empire for themselves. But there's also a lot of exploitation going on there. People not getting their fair share as far as wages go. But but also individuals having their recipes lifted by people who who are outside of their culture or or putting spins on things or or just being trapped in in what is without a great deal of success and fame a a pretty low rent job. Gast- uh, Gastronaut is in some ways kind of a reverse diaspora story um that is looking at this question of like what is authenticity and also what is the value of authenticity and the way that we learn about foods like pop dumplings and jelly pears is first in this very commodified form but also in a form that is divided from its cultural origin point. The fact that these were foods that were eaten specifically because there wasn't a lot of other food to be found. They were starvation foods, and now they've been co-opted into these cute little packages. So where Theravati's culture came from is it is French, it is Vietnamese, it has Spanish sprinkled in. It were colonies that were, or it was colonies that were launched by uh by soul and they had a slow boat and that means no rail travel which means you have to generation ship it exactly you have to give birth to the people who will fix the ship after you die and then keep going from there and they landed on theravati and they were on theravati for quite a few years before they managed to complete a rail gate and in an instant reconnect with the with the larger uh like system of power that ruled yeah. them mm-hmm and uh and and that is that is who the Theravatans are um as for Pacheco, Pacheco is based on France for its very, very wide streets as a method to foil barricade construction to block traffic as a act of rebellion uh when I read about that I, I found that very interesting and, and I wanted to include it as far as the architecture goes uh It is based on the city of Solo Nobre from Brigador, which I mentioned before. Solo Nobre being a colonial city uh, that has its own culture, its own existence, that is kind of picked over by um, by by other nations and corporations. The the difference here being that Solo Nobre is a city for its own people, whereas Pacheco is mostly Bright Sail's yeah. baby. Bright Sail being a real estate and uh, and like, well, I, I guess they are primarily a real estate and tourism business. Yeah. Who is trying to spread into agriculture on the side. Yeah. And the, who has a bunch of mercenaries to facilitate that. Exactly. Yeah. And, and the mercenaries aren't in-house. That isn't Bright Sales back, necessarily. Right. They, they just call them in, and, and they do the work they do. Mm. Um, and there was something else about Pacheco. And and it is, it is like, at its core, a very cyberpunk kind of place. It is a place of haves and have-nots. But instead of the locals being in, in larger positions of power, you generally commute through the wall do your jobs in the kind of wealthier districts, get a, a much better paycheck than you would outside of the walls, and then you and then you head back over to uh to the outskirts mm-hmm. where where a bunch of um of season two takes place. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> Alright. Good. 
where do all the neat tidbits about food that later get put into the show? Oh, where do you get all the neat tidbits about food that later get put into the show? Remember those wiki dives, Finch? <laughs> That's a lot of it. Uh, reading about World War One and how everyone would brew all of their tea for the morning in one pot and then empty that pot and then without really washing it, make the next stew. And what that caused over long cycles of this behavior was everything tasted like everything. Yeah. All things were the same thing. Your tea was meaty. Your your stew had like notes of like coolness and, and menthol and tea inside of them. Uh and and like that's just one example, but like you wiki dive for a thousand hours and eventually you just construct enough bricks that you build a world out of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, history, uh food journalism, reading about things that have happened in the past and trying to imagine what they would be in the future reading like speculating on the future and then trying to like bring them into a frame of reference that that an audience might be able to follow yeah. things like that and some of it also comes from our own cooking like some of the dishes that polity and oscar eat are the things that we really like eating at one point they're eating these like uh sweet potato pancakes and that's something that we really enjoy making um every single time that garlic is mentioned it's because we like putting <laughs> garlic in a ton of our foods because yeah. it's delicious and we're both picky eaters we've gone on our own journey ourselves yeah. where we would only eat maybe a handful of meals but together after we had a relationship yeah. as a relationship is ongoing we we keep trying new meals together and and cooking more and more foods to the point where we can just make chocolate eclairs. Yeah. And that's great. Finding out that, like, oh, this is just a beautiful way to improve my life. Yeah. And and Bernie's a big part of this, too. Uh, in editing, Bernie is always pushing me more smells, more imagery. And I'm over here thinking to myself, like, if I cannot make people want to try these foods or at least look at these foods or at least try to see how these foods fit into a people and culture... Yeah. Then I've I've failed on the world building side. The the one thing that I would never ever try is the galantine, which is the the like <laughs> jellified meat. Yeah, basically, and I just don't I don't want it. When I saw that galantine was considered like classical, like high class cuisine, yeah. I was like, I gotta put this in because <laughs> galantine's old. It's really old. The only thing that's like really uh, sci fi about it in Gastronaut is they just choose a. An alien meat, right. which is basically just an angrier crowd. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah, Galantine's a really grody sounding. But if you like Galantine, no problem. Enjoy. <laughs> Gotta make a, a gastronaut cookbook and put that put that right on the cover. <laughs> God, I wish that we could. I mean, what would we substitute, like, neurotoxin for? Like, capsaicin? Why do we need to substitute the neurotoxin? <laughs> because they miss the sparkle! <laughs> the sparkle's all about the fairy wraps! That's why people are going nuts for it. Oh, and it, and it's like exotic and stuff like that, and they're exporting it. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Do you have any more encounters planned around prosthetics and cybernetics than just the up to now ones we've seen with Mister Ogata? Uh, this is a question that when I read, I was very excited about. Um, so one of the themes of cyberpunk, or no, of of Gastronaut is specifically that. Oscar is a character in a cyberpunk-ish world, but he's not what you would consider a protag of that world. Yeah. 
he's kind of skirting around the edges. So, Mr. Ogata is, like, he, he is built with augments. He He's even more augmented than his character art uh, that we have over on our Tumblr might might indicate to you. Um, but but what he is is he is kind of like a mid tier character in a cyberpunk fiction or or a dangerous threat that a protag has to overcome. But to Oscar, he's impossible to stop. Right. He's he is a juggernaut. He <laughs> he's something that Oscar can't compete with. We we had T Will on the Tumblr being like, hey, do you think this person could beat Oscar in a fight? And generally, the, the answer, answer is, is yes. Yes, but I'd feel bad about right, it. Right, yeah. Exactly. Uh, so so we're probably not going to have too many more augments because we want to stay on the fringe. You might see maybe a prosthetic here or there as we go, but but Ogata has some really high-class things that makes him superhuman, effectively. Yeah. And while, uh, Bernie, you, you were thinking about um mm-hmm. about Polity and how Polity is more of a netrunner. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like like Aaron is saying, we we don't necessarily have a lot more planned with uh, cybernetics and and augmentation, but I think of Polity as being kind of a a net runner type who's hacking into things, but who doesn't necessarily have as much of the augmentation to back it up a lot of what they do is more geared around the social connections that they make that allow them to hack different systems and if you look at the reason why they came back to theravati they like oscar are not necessarily a protagonist of a traditional cyberpunk world they come back to theravati because they've been chased off of seoul they have multiple art museum security teams as well as some banana corporations coming after them and i i think it would be cool to have more background and lore about like the ways that augments can interact with the world of food that'll go in the bonus episodes definitely (laughs) yeah but at the same time i'm i'm really pleased with like what we've seen of mr ungerson like essentially eating way more because his augments cause him to need a greater caloric intake the man does not sleep you know how we were talking about that desire to have more hours in the day? Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Ungerson is living that life. And he's and he's loving it. But he but he, he pays for it in his own right. ways. Yeah. So a lot of the times augments are expensive, especially if they're enhancing anything you can do in your day to day life. Uh which means a lot of the characters that we run into don't augment as much mm-hmm. as, as you might uh, as you might expect or even hope. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, um, Oscar won't be throwing any dumpsters anytime soon. <laughs> okay, and that leaves us with the random get-to-know-you questions, I guess I guess we can call them that. Yay. So starting yeah. off with, what is your favorite type of character to write and or to see in media? Um, I love characters who are a coherent mess. By which I mean, I I love that when I I love a character who is very consistent in the types of mistakes they make. 
And I love it when they just will not stop making those mistakes. Yeah. Obviously, I want them to have an arc where they either get to, like, refuse the call to change, which is interesting, or where they finally are like, you know, maybe therapy is a good idea. <laughs> uh, but I, I just love being able to see the suspense of they're going to make a bad decision and then just have the immediate follow-up be... They did. They did make that bad decision. Uh, for me, um, in fiction, what I love to see is uh, is rival characters. I love to see a person roughly of a similar build, uh, of a deeply conflicting ideology, and uh, maybe with a palette swap of the main character. Uh, if you like Devil May Cry, I'm a huge Virgil guy. I, I like what Virgil does for the narrative, even if he is just a huge jerk. <laughs> Um, I, I like anybody who meets the hero on a similar level and also has a direct connection to what their philosophy is. If you're talking about freedom, the other guy's talking about order. If you're talking about, uh, like love and family, the other person is talking about like, like trying to, to gather strength to, uh, to kind of protect things again, going back to Virgil there. Yeah. Um, but what do I like to write? Uh, so I've, I've been a tabletop GM for, for about 10 years now, and that has given me so much hands-on time with writing antagonists that I've just fallen in love with writing antagonists. I, I like villains of all shapes and sizes. I like raging assholes. I like, uh, sad boys. I like villains that haven't actually realized they're the villain of the story yet. Uh, I like punch clocks. I, I like the full rainbow. And it, it extends to a lot of my tastes when it comes to, like, Baldur's Gate or, or like, uh, Wrath of the Righteous or, or anything like that. And we see that a lot in Ungerson, I think, both in terms of writing a villain and also in terms of writing a rival character. Oscar sees food as, first and foremost, I think, something that is to be shared and celebrated. And Ungerson also sees it as something to be celebrated, but he wants to keep it a secret from everyone else. He wants to be the only one who accesses it. Ungerson started out as like a thought experiment of like when you are really wealthy and connected and have like a stable career and income, like what does wealth become to you? Yeah. And Ungerson has chosen the corner of like I will go to Everest and then I will blow up Everest so none of you can have your tacky Instagram pictures. <laughs> oh god. I will I will go to this incredible sushi joint and then I will burn it down and I will be the only one with a memory of the sushi that yeah. matters. Cause, cause he also has the platform for it. But I think Ungerson and like how nasty he is overshadows the fact that Mr. Ogata is also a villain. Definitely. He, yeah. he props up the systems of power that Ungerson uses to hurt people. And he's rolling his eyes at Ungerson and, and he's like, oh, well, well, this guy is a jerk and I hate working for him. But he does work for him and he does hurt people for him. So, so they both are a duo that makes the world worse with their passage. Right. What is one of your favorite pieces of comfort media? Mine is Harrow the Ninth from the Locktomb <laughs> series. Yeah, Locktomb! Um, I, I love the work with point of view in it. I, I love the development of Harrow's character from the kind of outside view of her we get in Gideon the Ninth. Uh, I love the catharsis of it. And uh, I, 
I love a, a haunted house, and Harrow, even though she's in a space station, is ultimately still inside a haunted house. I love it. I read it every time I feel stressed. <laughs> I have read it three times over the past year. <laughs> the Lock Tomb is so fan. Reading the Lock Tomb has made us better writers. Really? Go, go read the Lock Tomb. It's it's great. I actually yeah. I bought all of those books. And I just moved about a month ago, a little a little over a month ago. Mm-hmm. So I have it sitting on my shelf. And I'm, I'm halfway through Gideon the Ninth. And I haven't got to pick it back up yet. But oh now I'm God. definitely going to. Yeah. Now I'm, now I'm convinced. Yes. <laughs> Enjoy. Please. Ha- Halloween is the perfect time for it. <laughs> it really is. Uh, the, the good part... Well, the good part's the whole book. Gideon's, Gideon the Ninth is my favorite. But, like, the second half is phenomenal. Hope you enjoy it, Finch. Uh, but I don't reread The Locked Tomb. Um, my, my comfort is, is RimWorld. It's the game that I always go back to once a year. I'm always playing it for like a couple months. Trying it. Uh, wait, hang on. Finch, do you know what RimWorld is? I actually should don't. I, should yeah, I actually should, explain yeah, myself here? Go ahead here? and explain it. Okay, so, so RimWorld is a, it is a branch of video game that I'm, I'm really into, which is a procedural narrative kind of game. It's, it's where all of the parts of the game fit together so well that there is no set storyline. Instead, the storyline forms from the interaction of the separate parts. If you've heard of The Sims, yeah. that's what I'm talking okay. about. You, you tell stories about where characters are going. What's up? Uh, you, you essentially like land on a planet with two or three settlers, and then you just have to survive as stuff happens to you. And sometimes the stuff will be absolutely bananas i remember watching aaron play an an early game just like glancing over and i see that he's built this this lovely little like beginning town and then i see a notification pops up that just says you are being attacked by a herd of 40 yorkshire terriers (laughs) and and i was like that is okay that's what aaron means by literally anything can happen yeah. in this game sometimes you get attacked by robots sometimes it's yorkshire terriers uh sometimes you accidentally domesticate an arctic wolf it's great <laughs> yeah and and like also there's just like the relationship uh kind of values that everybody forms with each other oh yeah you had people that were like getting into a relationship breaking yeah. up getting into a relationship marriage again. divorce uh child child raising childbirth it it is a story factory, and it is my crack cocaine. <laughs> I, I love that game. I really do, and I, I go back to it a lot. That's my comfort. Um, I'm going to actually expand on that question. Are there any like specific podcasts you guys find yourself coming back to? Hmm. I like the, the rest of Tumblr right now. am absolutely delighted by Re-Dracula. Um, I think that the sound work and the voice acting on it is so phenomenal. And there's also just something really wonderful about getting to experience something all at once. And I'm, I'm so happy that it exists. Uh, I am I am often ferociously busy, and I, I very I very rarely have time for podcasts. Uh, but I think um, I think Archive eighty one. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think that one is is really interesting. I know I want to hear more of it, but I've just I've never been able to make the time for the podcast. Once again, still never enough hours in the day. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think, yeah, read Dracula. I I still haven't listened to that one. Because I, I, that show, like, I mean, if you're in podcast spaces on Tumblr, you, you have to be seeing all the people talking about read Dracula. So, you know, they must be doing something right. Exactly. I listened to uh, a lot of it in, like, one night while I was getting ready for a zine fest. And I just, like, binged through probably, like, a month or two's worth in over the course of folding a bunch of one page zines (laughs) and i've kind of i i've kind of been waiting to like build up that same kind of um stockpile again so that i can do the same thing because even though it's wonderful to experience it at the same time as everyone else i also am held in such suspense by (laughs) this story that is over a century old um, what's your favorite color? Uh, mustard, yellow, and lilac, but not, like, mixed together. <laughs> red, but kind of a gloomy red, uh, kind of a sandy tan, and I like some, uh, some kind of pale grays. You, you like, uh, oxblood, oxblood reds. Oxblood, yes. right. Those are very specific, but, I mean, it's better than just saying, like, <laughs> oh, I like red, you know? <laughs> I mean, like, I used to love Hot Rod Red, but whenever I put it on, like, a character in a game yeah. or, or put it on, like, a like a model I'm working on, it just, it, it blitzes my eyes too much. Yeah. So I always try to bring it down. What are your favorite animals, and do you have any pets? Mochi. Yeah, Mo- Mochi is our favorite animal. She is our cat. Aww. She's a, a small black cat with a, a little white, like, spot on her chest. Um... She's extremely demanding. We love that she's extremely demanding. <laughs> Lately, we've been taking her on uh, walks. That's in air quotes outside <laughs> where we, we put her little kitty harness on. We open the front door. She walks like two feet outside the door and then she just sits in one place. <laughs> and I I think just experiences the world for about 20 <laughs> She watches minutes. the leaves fall in autumn. It's magical. So it is cute. pretty magical. Yeah. yeah. Um, we we love her. Sometimes she says hello. Uh, she she harasses us uh, in the bathroom. She, she dive bombs me from the headboard uh, when I'm waking up in the morning. I cannot tell you how much I love this cat. Yeah. Mochi's fantastic. And I think God, I I don't know how it sounds to say that my pet is my favorite animal. Mochi is probably my favorite right. animal. I mean, she's the animal that we have the most contact with at this yeah, point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Love that cat. Yeah. Love that cat. Yeah, I had a, um, well, I have a family dog that we've had since I was six, but I go to school oh um, 14 hours away from my hometown and from uh-huh. where my parents live. So especially in colleges, like there's not really a lot of animals around. So it's definitely weird going from mm-hmm. seeing an animal like 24 hours a day to not seeing an animal for three months. Last year, I had a squirrel that lived in the tree right outside my dorm, though. And he would, like, scream in the middle of the day. Like, I would look out the window and he would just be sitting in the tree <laughs> screaming. <laughs> That's so funny. I wonder what he wants. <laughs> he had no something idea. to tell the world, Apparently you so. know? <laughs> the people had yeah. to know. They had to. If only they could understand his message. Yeah, that's Maybe true. things would have been different. <laughs> Maybe he was warning us about something and, you know, nobody knows what squirrels are saying. So maybe one of those, like, trends. Don't videos. invest in NFTs. 
Um, if you were a dog, what would your favorite smell be? Mm. Oh, I had this. I forgot what it was. Other dogs. Um, I I would very much enjoy knowing that there were uh, other uh, people like me wandering around <laughs> in the world. Plus, like, don't they do a lot of communication through sniffing anyway? So it'd, it'd be like having a conversation. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Just kind of finding a... Oh my god, it's the equivalent of finding environmental graffiti in a video game. <laughs> that's that's what being a dog is. Don't dead open inside for dogs. <laughs> no! <laughs> um, if, if I was a dog, my favorite smell would be that kind of, like... Have you ever ordered a box of chocolates online and then you've and then you open it up and there's this kind of like plume of of sugars and cocoa and butter just kind of rising up maple oh I, I love chocolate anyway um that would be my obsession and I hope I have owners because that's a horrible dance that I'm dancing oh, yeah. as a dog da- dancing with doom and and a box of chocolates no but imagine like I already think that smell sounds Sounds jeez. I already think that smell smells amazing, uh, as it is as a human being with my okay nose. If I was a dog, seizure city. <laughs> yeah, that would yeah. be amazing. Yeah, I've never ordered chocolates online, but maybe I will now just so I can smell it when I open the box. Yeah. I mean it's it's getting to be like autumn and winter, which means that This is chocolate yeah, weather. It's, the it's time not only is it chocolate weather. Yeah. But also you don't have to worry about it melting yeah. and or having to pay extra for shipping. Exactly. Yeah. They don't have to ship it to you in that, like, Dracula's coffin that they usually do. <laughs> Speaking of re-Dracula, yeah, yeah, there you go. All right, and that brings us to our final question, which I know I said this in my email. This question came out as a joke in the very first episode of um, of Coffee Shop Chats, and now it's like a staple question that everybody in the server this is like important i think everybody might like judge you a little bit based based off of your off of your answer here so <laughs> all right we'll we'll do our best <laughs> so Whoa. what's your favorite weapon and what is the gayest weapon all right i have the gayest one <laughs> and i'll tell my favorite later i think that that would be a live goose now now hear me out here you don't hold it by the neck you have an agreement you have an alliance you and the goose are cooperating. You're working together. And and you are hurling this goose at people who are getting in your way. Metaphorically. Metaphorically. To, to take out your enemies. Exactly. Working working within a community if to I create saw, chaos. If I saw a human being that had allied with a goose, I would, I would fear them. Yeah. Because they are operating on a level that I cannot match. Exactly. <laughs> the only way to one-up um, them is to get two geese at that point. Exactly. Exactly. And that requires just so much right, networking, yeah. even in this day and age. Like, <laughs> it's hard enough to find exactly. one goose, let alone two. Yeah, a goose that will tolerate you and cooperate with you, you've got a silver tongue. Or a lot of bread. <laughs> Probably a lot of bread. Yeah. Um, what about your favorite weapon? Oh, this is boring. <laughs> Do you really want to hear my favorite weapon? Well, yes. I mean, we can't save it until last <laughs> if it's boring, Aaron. My favorite weapon is a belt-fed autocannon. I like the thump, thump, thump of, of a high-caliber, but not too high-caliber automatic weapon. I like the different things you can put in the <laughs> autocannon. I like how finicky the parts are. 
I like how if you don't take care of it right, it'll shake apart and explode inside of your vehicle or hand of choice. Uh, I I just think auto cannons are neat. Gotta respect it. Uh, Aaron's, <laughs> Aaron's is super high tech, and mine my favorite weapon. Tier. Oh come on, it's pre- it's pretty high tech. Like a laser or something. Well, I don't understand. I don't understand how it works. So, <laughs> um, my my favorite weapon is not. Uh, pretty technical. It is literally just a a spear with a with a boar catcher on it, uh, a winged spear. Um, I I like the oh, way that it I like the way that it looks. I like that it prevents you from having your enemy, the boar or whoever, run into you. Uh, and I like that. You are using a weapon that is born of great experience, yeah. which is the unfortunate things that happened to the previous people who did not have a boar catcher on their spear. You're connected to history, and that's that's beautiful. <laughs> Sometimes you want your enemies close, but you also want to keep them at a distance. Right. Yeah. You, know? you want yeah. them kind of in that middle ground. Um, and as for the gayest weapon... Uh, a silk handkerchief fashioned into a garrote embroidered by your lover. It's perfume too, right? It could be. It, it could, could be. be. It could also be embroidered by your best friend uh, or by uh, a group of, of besties. Bonding that is such a classy pick. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, the bonding experience of taking out somebody who has made your life hell. <laughs> I feel like you all just managed to really, really redefine what what we're qualifying as a weapon. Oh, excellent! All right. Yes. All right. Okay. Awesome. Like, like. Well, thank you. Yeah, that was very some exciting. Of the past people have been okay. I'll, so my answer, right? My answer in the first episode, I was like, gayest weapon. It's got to be a dagger, right? Like, short sure, swords are cool. Thirsty sword lesbians. Like we all, we all love a good sword. But a dagger is just a yes. sword, but, like, intimately closer, right? Like, there is no straight reason to be that close to another person, even if you're stabbing them, you know? But I, I appreciate... No one comes out of a knife horizons. out of the pretty. <laughs> yeah. That's... I, I really, really like that. Yeah, you, you need a chance to look into someone's eyes. That's right, beautiful. Yeah. You sold that really well, Yeah, Finch. yeah you, you know, you, you look into their eyes, you whisper something, maybe threatening, maybe not, you know. It's, it's romantic, it's inherent. Yeah, yeah. You whisper, you've made me late for lunch, and that's it. <laughs> and you either have to have, like, a good plan or some serious, like, grit oh, yeah. to bring a dagger to a fight, because you are going mm-hmm. to be nose-to-nose nose with that person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I respect it, Finch. <laughs> I respect it. Yeah, there's there's never been a bad answer to that question. Someone, I don't remember who, I, um, I think... It might have been Marissa of Liars and Leeches that said words was the gayest weapon. And I was like, okay, I respect that as well. Like, I see where you're coming from. That definitely has some merit to it. Yes. Um, Absolutely. It's It's about the intent, not the action itself, maybe. And also the, uh, the ability to override like the hard forces of like 
heteronormative societies with just sheer persuasion and being able to think through the fact that other forms of being exist and are beautiful and should be given the same amount of space. And while a sword may rust in the fields, a book that is kept in a climate-controlled environment is eternal. We're so biased on this one, considering her career. I mean, (laughs) you know, yeah, but... (laughs) There's already the title Wordsmith out there, that's pretty awesome. That's pretty good. And you go to the Wordsmith and get a new new onomatopoeia forged. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, that brings us to the end of all of our questions. Uh, Thank you so much, Finch. Yeah, anything else additional... Any burning questions you want to answer that I didn't ask? <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, I don't think I have any burning questions to answer, but I do just want to say, like, thank you again for having us. Uh, this this was really, really fun to talk to you about, and I'm so happy that you're doing this project. Yeah, really good for you, Finch. I, I do actually do have a... A question that I can answer right oh, now. Oh, please. What's the question? <laughs> if you are looking at the protagonist of Gastronaut and you're wondering, could I take him? Yeah. <laughs> you can take him. You can beat him in a fight. Oscar Don't worry. doesn't want to be in a fight. So. <laughs> That's half of the reason why he's losing. Yeah. <laughs> but no, seriously, Finch, this was wonderful. Yeah. I, I really, really like what you put together here. I am so These glad questions are phenomenal, to... too. Thank you. I mean, only part of that is, is me. A lot of that is, you know, the server members. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, we talked a lot about the accessibility of creators, but I think this is kind of a, a different way to approach it plus i feel like uh there's just a lot more personability in you know hopping on a voice call versus replying to a tumblr ask you know on your computer or whatever so that's a pretty sweet idea yeah that's true i mean we we work in in audio so more audio more audio yeah Yeah, thank you all so much for coming. I I know it's probably like like you guys were saying you're excited, but I am like three times as excited as you guys. I feel like so I love doing this. It's Aww. you know Aww. one of my favorite things I get to do. That's awesome, Vince. Yeah, that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Good. Well, I hope we gave you a reason to be excited for the next one too. Of course. Yeah. yeah. So, um, if you guys want to plug your socials and things real quick. Absolutely. Um, So we are on Tumblr at Gastronaut uh, hyphen pod Mm -hmm. um, and also on Blue Sky at the the same. We're not really on Twitter anymore. (laughs) We we sometimes post there. Yeah. Yeah. But But, uh, but yeah, no, you can really find us on Tumblr if you're looking for us. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the podcast itself is Gastronaut. There's a couple of different podcasts out there with the same name, so if you want to narrow it down, you can always go for Gastronaut Aaron Kling. That'll usually bring us up as the first option, if I'm not mistaken, right? Exactly. Yeah. And uh, if you decide that you want to throw a few dollars our way, uh, our Patreon is patreon.com slash Aaron Kling, which is spelled A-A-R-O-N-K-L-I-N-G. And uh, 
otherwise we we really really love hearing from people so please please reach out the best thing you can do is reach out or tell your friends about us so they can reach out yeah a pyramid scheme of reaching out (laughs) don't put the pyramid curse on them (laughs) the curse of the pyramids upon you (laughs) 